0: Adam Altair is a professor of marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business and the Robert Stansky Teaching Excellence Faculty Fellow. Adam is the New York Times bestselling author of Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, and Drunk Tink Pink, which investigates how hidden forces in the world around us shape our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. He has written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and a host of other TV, radio, and publication. His next book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, will be published in 2023.
1: Adam Altu, welcome to The Creative Process.
2: Thanks for having me, Mia.
1: And so we're very interested in your whole body of work and Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked.
2: Yeah, happy to discuss that book. It's been for a little while now, but I think the topics in the book are just as concerning and just as relevant now.
1: Even more relevant since its publication.
2: The book Irresistible is about the rise of screens and how they've encroached on our lives in a very broad way. And it's true for kids. It's true for adults. It's true for basically everyone. And I think the reason it's particularly important for creativity is because some of the most creative minds have themselves been very resistant to technologies that have got in the way, but most people have not. And so there's something interesting about who has been resistant and who has not been to allowing, for example, smartphones and tablets and computers to to play a huge role in their lives. So the prologue for the book, I talk about what really got me interested in the topic in the first place. There was an interview with Steve Jobs. Just before he died in 2010, he had just released the first generation of the iPad, which turned out to be a very successful product for Apple. And he was asked in an interview a couple of months later, how do you feel the iPad is performing? Are you happy with its release and so on? And he said lots of things. He said, yes, we're very happy. It seems to be doing very well. But at the end of the interview, he was asked a question by the journalist. So your kids must love the iPad. And his response was very surprising because he had told everyone you should have one, your kids should have one. But when he was asked this question about his own kids, he said, they've never used it. We don't allow it into the home, which is deeply surprising, right? It suggests something about this very creative mind. He was always known for being brilliant and out of the box and for coming up with phenomenal products and amazing branding and for being very a bit of a perfectionist in what he released into the world. He decided that he needed to protect his kids from the very devices he was telling the rest of us to be using and to be giving to our kids. And so for me, that was totally fascinating because a lot of what I do rests on creativity, coming up with interesting ideas, immersing myself in a subject. And so I wanted to understand more about that. What is it that someone like Steve Jobs might've been concerned about and were other people similarly concerned? And I found that yes, a lot of very, very smart business minds, people who are in the tech world were very, very concerned about what these devices might be doing to us.
1: Yes, it's true. And you outlined further, uh, not just uh, Steve Jobs, but the people who've made it, the neuroscientists and the whole group of very smart people involved limit the access of their children, their families to it, their own person to it. And it reminds me of that line. It's in the Tower of Song of Leonard Cohen. The rich have got their channels in the bedroom of the poor. And there's a mighty judgment coming, but I might be wrong. It's, you know, we're all consumers, but it's a difference between making it and being in the audience.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think in this case, the people making these products have access to so much so many different data points and they have access to some very smart psychological minds who can craft the products so that they're very difficult for us to resist and so we the consumers behind the screens are really outmatched it's very very difficult for us to compete with just how well put together these products are and so there are now literally billions of us who are unable at times to say all right I'm done with this product i need to move on to the next thing
1: yeah so how do we take advantage of the screens and the technologies and the opportunities for learning and connectivity that they provide, it really does open up a positive element of globalization and in many different aspects, but while still reining in and leaving space for the personal time and the in-person connections and our own personal creativity.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. I think when you start speaking to someone who's critical of tech, as I am, one important question is to ask, do you think all technology is bad? Should we be you know, rolling back to the 1950s? I certainly don't believe that. The reason I'm critical and became interested in this criticism of screens is because I love them and I think they play an incredibly important role in our lives. And if you need an illustration, living through the last few years during COVID, we were in some ways very lucky to have access to screens because as much as they tethered us to work in a way that might not have been healthy for everyone, they also allowed us to communicate socially with people who might have been unreachable to us. I mean, if you imagine if COVID had hit 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, I think we would have been much more atomized and um, separated from other people than we were. It's hard to imagine what that might have been like. I'm sure there would have been pros and cons, but absolutely, there are tremendous benefits to screens. And so implicit in your question is this idea that whatever you're doing on a screen, it's not monolithic. You can do lots of things. You can do good things and not so good things. It's always worth asking this broad question. What are the pluses? What are the minuses? And how do they work together? And when you add them up, are you ultimately enriching yourself in this moment by using the screen? Is it relaxing? Is it bringing you closer to other people? Is it helping you work more effectively? Or is it on balance not such a good thing? In which case maybe you want to try to work out how you can curb your use.
1: Yeah. As you outlined, there's a lot of negative incentivization where there are these positive apps, but there are a lot of negative ones that trigger anger. And just if you go into the list of addictive triggers that we can easily fall prey to and not take advantage of the beautiful pastures that technology also provides.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a big thing is trying to work out which of those platforms are good, which ones are not so good for us. You mentioned anger. I think, unfortunately, there was an experiment done in 2016 to try to get a sense of what kind of content brings us to the screen. So this whole, the whole screen economy, whether it's a company like, or a a platform like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat or whatever other platform, TikTok, they all basically rest on attracting your eyeballs and keeping you there. And so what that means is you have to make a platform that's hard for people to resist. And so one of the big questions for these platforms is, how do I design an algorithm to deliver information and content to you so that you'll stay, so you won't go somewhere else? And in 2016, Facebook did a massive experiment. They released all these different emoji buttons so they could see when you saw content and you responded, was it the like button that kept you there on the platform the longest? You know, if you see content, you say like, do you then stay on the platform longer? If you see content and use a love button, that is a little heart. Is that the one? There's a sad button. Is that the thing that brings you together? You could imagine there were some people who had theories about sadness, galvanizing us and bringing us together. There were a lot of theories about all of this. Some people thought humor was the kind of universal uniting factor. What they found, as you said, was anger is the big one. So what a lot of these platforms do is they optimize for anger, which is a terrible, terrible state of affairs, but what they effectively do is they try to deliver just the right dose of content to make you just angry enough that you're not furious, but you're sort of angry about something which then brings you to the screen, makes you very engaged with it and keeps you there longer than pretty much any other emotional state. So we have an engine that's driven by anger. It's obviously not going to be good for us much of the time. And it's something that's worth keeping in mind and thinking about as you use your social media channels, whatever they might be. Just ask yourself, what are the emotional tones of the content you're consuming? And you'll see that There are little bits of here and there of content that are designed to elicit that anger, and they know what makes you angry because they have so much information about your proclivities, your interests, your attitudes and values from your click patterns and your internet usage over time.
1: It is interesting, and as you say, it's a double-sided coin because recently with Twitter and many of us are open to freedom of speech, but we have to understand what's coming with that and the drugified experience of the delivery of news which some is more <laughs> verifiable than others. Right. It's this thing that we have to weigh up Well, it is the source of our information, but we ask ourselves, can we get that information in other ways?
2: So I know people who do this, who if you think about eating food, a lot of the Western world is very privileged. We have access to more food than we could possibly eat, which was not historically the state for humans. Humans had to find food and then they ate it and then they had to find some more and then they ate it and so on. And hopefully they found enough to stay alive. We're, we're not in that position anymore. We have too much food. And so our challenge is very different. It's, it's how do you cut down on your intake? Otherwise we could sit and just eat all day, every day, and that would be not very healthy for us. So most people don't do that. And the same is now true with finding ourselves in this funny position where information used to be scarce. You had to go out and find it and you had to try very hard. This was even true when I was a kid, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And things are very different now. And so one thing you could do is just as you might be a little bit more careful about what you consume dietarily, you also need to be c- careful about what you consume in terms of information. So I have friends who will say, I'm going to pick two or three news sources that really matter to me, that I trust. doesn't matter what it is for you. And there are a lot of platforms bil- out there that will rate news sources according to their reliability. And so let's say you pick two or three of them and that's all you consume. So maybe you buy a subscription to those three platforms online, or maybe you even ask for the paper, the physical paper, and you page through it. And so what you're doing then is you're you're getting the information you need. You're trying a little bit harder to get it. It's not just coming up in front of you on this like Twitter feed or whatever, but you're also curating your diet much more effectively. And so you're not consuming as much of the garbage that I think most of us consume. And we just allow our eyeballs to just roam the pastures in front of us on social media platforms.
1: Yes. And there's this externality. We've become so intimate with our devices and we care, we bring it everywhere with that newspaper, which I think is also important. The way that we receive things in social media, the study is about particularly young people, but all of us, our ability to retain and learn. And sometimes that physical object of a newspaper, though you can't get as many stories into it, helps with that deep reflection.
2: Yeah, well, it slows you down and it forces you to to pay attention in a slightly different way, right? You're, you're much more engaged with a newspaper, even physically you're more engaged. Instead of just scrolling on the mouse, you're physically holding the paper and you're turning the pages. And that's, that might seem like a trivial difference, but actually that physical engagement with the paper itself, I think means that you're elaborating a little more on what you're seeing and you're, you're participating a little bit more deeply. So I think that's right. I think ultimately you might end up consuming less information. And maybe if there's an ongoing emergency event, I know that's for me when Twitter is really helpful. When something happens and I don't want to wait for the newspaper to arrive the next day. I want to know what's going on now in the communities where something's happening. And I want to see people tweeting from those communities. I think that fragmentation of the news is unbelievably valuable in those situations. But that's really what you've got to do is you really have to say, you know, there are going to be pluses and minuses with almost every form of technology. Sometimes the pluses will outweigh the minuses, and For me, I actually find a lot of what goes on on Twitter, at least historically until now, the jury's out on what the new version of Twitter will be like. But historically, I found Twitter to be very useful because you have so much power to curate the newsfeed and what you listen to and what you read. So yeah, it's just a matter of working out. But even the same platform for different purposes can be more beneficial or less beneficial. And I think that's the key to work that out.
1: Yeah. And so you're in marketing as well. You lecture on this and you know about the triggers and persuasion, of course. You know, sometimes I go back and I see those old advertisements like you say you don't want to go back entirely, but you go look and see a 60s television show or listen to those old wireless programs. And there's this, as you say, the pacing is so different. There's a charm and an obviousness and a diplomacy about it. Or Mm -hmm. if you look at, I don't know, like an old Pathé newsreel, and you yeah. can see people being seen by a camera for the first time. And it just makes me reflect on how much, maybe, innocence we have lost.
2: Yeah, that's, I think, a lot of what it is. And when I teach, I teach an introduction to marketing class to undergrads and MBAs and PhD students and executive MBAs. It's a big range of audiences. And we do begin with it's something very much like that. We'll look at old newsreels and we'll look at ads from the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, the, the dawn of TV, really. And we look at those ads and we sort of laugh. In a superior way because they look so naive. And you're right, there is something very humane about them. They're very straightforward. They don't seem to be trying too hard to convince you of anything. And if they do, they just seem so obvious. Now, there's no trickery there, there's no chicanery. It's right there in front of you. And I think people weren't jaded in the same way back then. They were just taking things at face value, they weren't bombarded. You know, you saw one ad, I don't know. I don't know how often ads were presented then exactly, but I know there were many fewer of them. And so you didn't encounter as many and so you had more mental resources for them. So you actually listened to them. So a company might say, here's our new bar of soap. It has these 10 benefits that make it better than the competition. There is no advertising like that today because no one's got time to listen to those 10 things. You just need to be bombarded by sights and sounds and the branding. And then you're like, oh, that's the bar of soap for me. And so I, I think you're right. I think things have changed partly because we've changed, Partly also because we've just been bombarded by too much information and we can't possibly process everything thoroughly enough to make sense of it.
1: I want to ask you a few more questions of what you do at the World Economic Forum. and But I do yeah. want to mention on that because I had a conversation just the other day with Alain Robert, the, the great urban climber, and it's about, you know, we were talking about there's too much of everything. But what he does, I mean, talk about being able to give up technologies is, you know, he'll scale rock faces and buildings with just his bare hands. So not even the technology of rope, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how we get to that. It's just very hard for us now to be alone with ourselves or just the people who matter to us most. But that's where the real, I guess, the real imagination, the real transformation often takes
2: place. I think you're right. I mean, I think the real skill today is is figuring out how to create space between you and your tech devices, and so you, maybe you do have to free solo up a rock face. That's your only real option if that's the kind of pursuit that you're interested in. But I think for the rest of us, those of us who aren't doing that, there there has to be a kind of down to earth version of that, which is to say, ask yourself how much of the day you can't reach your phone. In other words, how much of the day do you have to walk to find your phone, or you even have to search for it. And for the vast majority of people, the phone is there all the time. It's right there it's functionally implanted. It may not be inside your head, but you allow it by having it right there to basically function that way. And so, yes, you could climb a rock face or you can go for a walk, you know, go outside, leave your phone at home and go for a walk for five minutes, that sort of thing. So th- there are analog solutions to the digital problem. I think the single biggest solution for most people, at least low-hanging fruit, the most obvious place to begin, is to just say, I'm going to carve out time every day, create habits where I will not be near my devices certain times of the day. It might be dinner time. Maybe no matter where I am, whom I'm with, what I'm doing, I will not during dinner time use a device. Or it might be the first hour of the day. A lot of people do that. You know, spend the first hour of the day tech-free, have a cup of coffee if that's what you like to do, read a physical newspaper, or just sit or read a book, whatever you want to do, or be with your kids or loved ones or whatever. It depends what your situation is. And then the same before bed. So between 60 and 90 minutes before bed, don't use a phone. And even those small changes, no phone at dinner time, no phone first hour of the day, no phone hour before bed, that'll change your life. It gives you back about two and a half hours of your day, which people, when they start doing it, say, I can't believe I've lost that much time. So I think that there are many things we can do. We just have to make the decision to do them.
1: Yes. There's many life-saving habits we can form without risking our lives. Since there's been so many events, like the Facebook
0: whistleblower recently, how she spoke out about the addictive methods they use and what you were saying about how oftentimes technology companies will try to spark negative emotions like anger. Mm -hmm. Do you think it all comes to a head at a certain point when the companies or the corporations, the people creating this tech, reach a moral threshold if it becomes too all-encompassing for society?
2: Yeah, it's such an interesting question, right? I've been thinking about this problem long enough to have seen a number of changes some arcs in how we've thought about the issue. So one thing that happened was when I was first interested in the topic, it was actually not that easy to sell a book on it. So publishers were convinced that we all love tech and they weren't convinced that we were critical of tech or that we should be critical of tech, which is almost impossible to believe. This is only like seven or eight years ago. So that's one thing that's shifted is we as a population, I think, are much more critical and are much more thoughtful about our relationship to these devices. One of the big shifts is that In the beginning, when I started speaking about this, a lot of parents would come to me and say, I'm worried about my kids, but now it's kids coming about their parents. And the reason that makes me hopeful is there was this question about what it would be like to be born into the era of phones. You know, if you're a kid, you're born your first couple of years, you're surrounded by screens. I have a five-year-old and a six-year-old. That's true for both of them. Is that a problem or is that going to mean that you learn coping strategies that the rest of us don't have? And so far, it seems like young people are coping much better with screens than older adults are. I'm hopeful that we're heading in that direction. I think there's a very strong drive for this to just get more and more intense. And especially with the rise of augmented and virtual reality tech, there's a lot of money to be made in the metaverse and so on. So I I think that's going to push us further in that direction. But I'm hopeful that governments will eventually intervene, perhaps, or that individuals will be better about making decisions for themselves. And they'll push these companies to, to take their welfare seriously in the way they haven't in the past. So I'm optimistic, but cautiously optimistic.
1: Yes. On that note about augmented reality and AI, you know, there's those, as you're saying, who are optimistic about it and machine learning, manage it correctly, we'll get more free time, freedom from mundane work, but, you know, it's a big bet on assistive technology. So what are your thoughts on the possibilities of AI helping us make more time for personal growth and connection?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the promise of AI is boundless. You know, there's potentially so much good can come from it. And I think that was true about our screens in general 20 years ago. And we didn't know which direction the world would go. And unfortunately, I think we've had some great developments and some not so great developments. I'm similarly cautious about AI and virtual reality and augmented reality tech in general. I could imagine it being used for the ends of connecting us to people who are far away. You know, it would be amazing to be able to be in this virtual universe where I feel, I really genuinely feel like I'm in the same room as people who aren't there. We've never really been able to achieve that yet. I mean, Zoom, our conversation right now is a bit of a miracle, but it doesn't feel like we're in the same room, not entirely. It's good, but it hasn't reached that peak. So maybe that's what will happen. Maybe we'll even be able to create connections with people who are no longer alive, which I think would be amazing. So imagine you want to have a conversation with the most meaningful five artists who have passed away, and you want to bring them back to a sort of dinner party conversation. And you could have these real version, real sort of avatar AI versions of those artists with their personalities effectively intact. Can you imagine having that dinner party? I think there are some uses that are really amazing and engaging and If you take them too far, a bit dystopian. But I think they could be phenomenal. And so it's just this question about whether we're going to extract the best from these forms of tech or whether we're going to turn them into just advertising, revenue generating machines the same way that screens have been. So I think the jury's out on that at the moment.
0: In that vein, you mentioned in your book how most addicts don't actually like the thing they're addicted to. It's just Mm. like the chemical rush in your brain that comes. So if we use technology for something like you were mentioning, like if we could connect with loved ones who passed away or something like that. Do you think that that has the same effect since technology is so constantly evolving?
2: There are different parts of the brain responsible for liking and wanting. So wanting is unbelievably robust in the brain. In other words, the neural connections are very robust. And wanting is what drives most addictive behavior. It's when you really want something, like you want a cigarette, you want alcohol, a drug, whatever it is that you're poisoned and actually screens for some people as well. The liking part, When you say to people, what does it mean to be addicted to something? A lot of people say it's, you really like it so much that you just keep going back to it. It's actually not about liking. What actually happens is that in the beginning, liking and wanting go together. So let's pick something like a cigarette. If you start smoking in the beginning, you like the experience of smoking and you also really want the nicotine, you want the cigarette. They go hand in hand. But eventually what happens is the liking is much more fragile and it decays and what's left is the wanting and often in the absence of liking. Kind of like a bad relationship. Like if you're in a bad romantic relationship, it starts out being about wanting and liking, but then the liking goes away and you just kind of want to be with a person. Even though you know it's undermining your welfare, that's effectively addiction. And a lot of people say addiction and uh, counterproductive love are very similar. So that doesn't answer your question about what it's going to be like to have these connections with loved ones. But uh, I'm hopeful that on balance, it'll be a positive experience. That the virtual and augmented reality worlds we build will ultimately just bring us closer to people far away. My family in Australia, which is a long way from where I am in the US, that's what I'm hoping for. And having seen how things have evolved, even in the last 50 years, the fact that my kids can talk to their grandparents and their uncle and their cousins and feel like they're right there is pretty good. So I hope we get more of that.
1: Yes. And I know your current forthcoming projects, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, you mentioned this ability to perhaps have greater insights or even collaborate in a kind of vague way with artists of the past or people from the past or those loved ones that maybe we didn't get a chance to know, but we can kind of accumulate what we do know about them to make these predictions about how they would be. So could you just go into that a little bit? Because that is a real positive element of these Mm -hmm. assistive technologies.
2: Yeah, there are two parts to being able to commune with people who are not actually around physically or because they're just no longer around in time. One is that it's, it's emotionally powerful, this idea of being able to bring people back, even if it's just AI versions of them, but if they're convincing AI versions, there's something really magical about that potentially if it's done right. So that's the one thing. The other thing from a creativity perspective is we know that more people around you is good for creativity. It's one of the axioms in thinking about creativity in general. You need time. An artist, a writer, I'm a writer. I need time on my own. I also paint and draw. I cannot do that with other people around. It's just my process. But before you get there, before you get to that point where you need that time alone, that space apart, for almost everyone, being around other people is good. It's good for creativity. It's both about diversity of opinion and idea and just about having more, just more information, more thoughts, more ways of looking at the world. And some of the most profound research I've come across in preparing for this book suggested that it's better to be around people who are deeply incompetent than it is to be around no one, which I found very surprising. I always thought, yeah, you want to surround yourself with people who are really good at the thing you're trying to do because it'll rub off on you and you'll end up being better. You know, you'll pick up bits and pieces from them. But the really fascinating idea is that even people who do something worse than you do it are actually good for your creative process, which I hadn't really thought of much. But there's some really robust evidence to that effect, which suggests that there's not much cost to bringing other people's brains into the creative process, AR and VR tech, is that you can bring in more ideas. And and I think that's one potential use of screens and tech and a greater diversity into the way you, you think about any creative process.
1: Definitely. Well, I write and I'm a painter, so I understand. And of course, uh, I've been working with all of students. And I think having people who come from the outside, observing your work or adding their voice, then that helps with the clarification process. It just makes your vision get stronger, I believe. And we all know with any kind of creative discipline, the more problems you go through, the, the better it gets. So we're excited to see your book. And I know there's different iterations of Anatomy of a Breakthrough.
2: Yeah, the book will be released next year in the spring in the US, so roughly May. And then I imagine it'll be in Europe and other parts of the world around the same time.
1: And you also advised a World Economic Forum. Could you just help us understand some of those discussions?
2: Yes, the World Economic Forum put together a committee that was trying to understand how augmented and virtual reality tech would evolve over time and how the blockchain and artificial intelligence might evolve over time. They put together a committee of, I think it's about two dozen academics from around the world who study these topics. So I'm one of the academics on that committee. And we wrote a report basically trying to understand how these technologies might evolve, but also how we would like them to evolve. We don't really have teeth to actually push the industry in a particular direction, but if anyone's looking for our thoughts, we sort of listed down some principles. Things like the principles that we've discussed here, this idea that we'd hoped that these forms of technology are ultimately for the good, they're for connection, they're for driving creativity. They are for more pluses than minuses and what those pluses and minuses might look like. So that's what that committee was formed for, to write a report that was published a little while ago. It's just a distillation of the ideas of about 25 people who've been thinking about these topics for quite a long time.
1: And governance is, of course, very important. So what suggestions were you putting forth?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting to me that around the world, there are different levels of intervention from governments. You know, there are some countries that are much more We'll use the U.S. term libertarian about technology. They say, you know, it's up to the consumer. Even if it's hard, you just have to decide as the consumer what you want your kids to experience, what you want to experience. If you don't want to use technology, don't download this particular app and figure out a way to just help yourself. I think that's unrealistic Uh, at scale. I just, I know too much about the products that are being put out into the world and our ability as humans to resist them, to know that, to just rely on the bottom-up process of every consumer empowering him or herself is just unrealistic. The alternative is to go top-down. And there are some governments, Western Europe, Northern Europe, East Asia, and to some extent, Australia are at the fore of this, where the government is getting involved in saying, there are some things we don't want to happen when technology becomes a bigger part of our lives. And so there's legislation that says, for example, there are certain features that cannot be built into the apps that are used in this part of the world. There are certain privacy requirements. They build in a whole lot of different legislative requirements that don't exist in other parts of the world. So I I very broadly think about how we govern and shift and shape the role of technology in our lives as having two forces. There's the bottom-up force, which is consumers empowering themselves, and that's very important. I don't think it can be the only thing. And then there's the top-down force of governments getting involved, of legislation. And there is more and more of that happening now in some parts of the world.
1: And we do have to be aware of it because it's shaping itself in a way. It's kind of a lawless territory right now.
2: Yeah, it is. Absolutely.
1: And there's so many elements with that. And because there's other technologies as well, like synthetic biology and all these things, but we don't realize the elements. I was having a conversation the other day with Nick Bostrom in the Future of Humanity Institute. Mm-hmm. And he said, if I was really aware of what is happening and the how fast uh, AI and machine learning is developing, I think I'd be frightened.
2: Yeah, we really do only see the end product, right? So this is something someone told me once about Apple, that the products that are being released today, they must have been in the works for years, right? So the things we're seeing today were probably in the works before COVID began. And so much has changed during that time. The things that Apple is working on today, we won't experience as consumers until 2025, probably. But these things happen fast. We only get to see the end product of them. And so we're completely incapable of intervening on the process, or at least there's a very big lag. And so if we want to have any effect on the products, like if today the government said the products that are being made today have to have these three safety features built into them, we wouldn't actually experience those products for a few years just based on the way hardware works and the evolution of hardware and how it's designed and how it's manufactured, which it just takes a long time. But yeah, from our perspective as consumers, everything just feels like it moves unbelievably fast.
1: On that point, it would be nice, I guess, to have monitors just in the same way like the Food and Drug Administration.
2: It's funny. People come up with all sorts of different metaphors and analogies, and that's a really good one. I think having an FDA a Food and Drug Administration for technology would be great. And one of the other ones that people bring up is this idea of the Hippocratic Oath, which suggests that if you're in the medical fields, you're supposed to, above all else, do no harm. That's your kind of guiding light. And it's a really useful, basic philosophical idea to use as your guide when you make decisions because it forces you to do this kind of pros and cons analysis with everything you're doing. There is no Hippocratic Oath for tech, but it's a great idea, right? If Facebook says we're going to introduce the like button, what's the worst that can happen? Turns out some pretty bad stuff can happen. But if you don't ask that question, you just don't turn your mind to those questions, or maybe you aren't forced to. Maybe you know that they're there, but you just don't really look at the sun because the potential negatives are kind of overwhelming. So yeah, I, I agree. Some oversight would be great. And that's why a lot of people think that government legislation is critical with respect to technology, because we can't just rely on consumers to empower themselves when everything is being done to undermine that power. And the government might need to get it involved in some form.
0: Hello, my name is Claire Konstein, and I am a senior at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California, where I study geology and environmental science. I am particularly interested in the psychology of the human and nature relationship, and I am passionate about healing our modern disconnect from the natural world to help both ourselves and the environment. Adam Alter's book, Irresistible, and our discussion here today sheds an in-depth and unique perspective on the relationship between humans and technology, and how that affects the ways in which we interact with nature, other humans, and our own minds. Technology is an ever-pervasive omnipresence in our modern world. It is constantly evolving to target our dopamine centers, and creates an almost unavoidable dependence on the newest piece of tech, be it for work, leisure, or communication. However, it would be remiss to dismiss technology as an evil, without focusing on all that it has done for community and society. In speaking with Adam, it is clear he does not view technology as a means to an end of a functional society, but rather as a malleable tool for connection, progress, and cultural expansion. We rely on technology to feel connected, to maintain access to our cultures and communities we are physically separated from, and to communicate with loved ones. Technology can evolve in multiple ways, and Adam Alter offers that this evolution could involve new ways to be more intimate with people who are far from us, connect us with people we idolize, and learn more about the world around us. The practices that keep technology addictive can be foregone without losing our connection to a global society by implementing policies on types of strategies we can use when developing technology. Perhaps more importantly, on an individual level, We discussed the importance of deciding for yourself what parts of technology bring you fulfillment and focusing on healing our own relationships to nature, art, and creativity. Spending time creating, being outdoors, and socializing with people we love all, in turn, help to end a dependency on technology and create a world where technology bolsters up our communities rather than separating them. And now back to the interview. After identifying technology addiction as an epidemic, are there different techniques that are being implemented more in the psychology realm of things? And when the time comes to alter the technology and perhaps make it less addictive, does that work come from the top down, reconstructing the whole thing, or what sorts of ideas are out there now?
2: Yeah. So if you're dealing with people who have effectively medical grade addictions, like very much like the kinds of addictions you would see to drugs or to other substances, Then you need clinics and you need inpatient facilities and you need cognitive behavioral therapists and so on. And and there are some of these facilities in the U.S. and elsewhere. Different parts of the world have different ideas about how they should look and what kind of oversight they should have. But in the U.S., there are a lot of private clinics like that, that I've visited. Some of them do very good work. Some of them do work that's, I think, questionable, makes a lot of money. But they are trying to treat the problem and treating it as a medical problem. For me, my personal interest in this topic is much more about the sociology than about the medicine. And it's not so much about the small percentage of us who develop medical-grade addictions to screens. It's about the rest of us whose lives have been deeply affected by screens in profound ways that don't rise to the level of medical concern or pathology, but that rise, I think, to the level of severely affecting our welfare across a whole range of different spheres, social, psychological, physical, financial. But the reason why I think legislation might be so important, even I'm a little bit wary about specific governments making decisions that will then affect us for a long time is that I think these are problems that are so big, that affect so many of us. We're talking about the majority of the population being affected by them, that without legislation, I don't know what else we can really do. I don't know how else you can push these tech companies to make those decisions. You know, One thing you would hope for is that you have grassroots pressure from the users of platforms. It's like if you imagine the 8 billion people in the world, let's say 3 billion use Facebook. If you imagine that tomorrow Every single one of those 3 billion people came together and said, we are not going to use Facebook for the next three months because we don't like the way its algorithm makes us feel. That would change how Facebook behaves. Now, we're never going to do that. There's no way that 3 billion people are doing that. And in fact, the closest we've seen lately is people responding to Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, where a lot of people are saying, I'm angry about this and I don't want to use the platform. But even then, it's a tiny sliver of people who are actively just disengaging from the platform. But it is having some effect in shaping how Musk is making decisions about it. That's what you might hope to see from a grassroots perspective, that enough people push back on these platforms that they are forced to make some changes. That's happened a little bit with Facebook. You mentioned Francis Hogan, the the whistleblower. It happened when the Cambridge Analytica scandal came out, suggesting that our privacy was being compromised and so on. So, you know, you do see that from time to time, but it's all very piecemeal. I think we need some better overarching structure so that like a hundred years from now, we as a society, as as a species have dealt with these issues more effectively in a wholesale way, rather than just cobbling together solutions after the fact.
1: Yeah. Of course, we're always rewiring our brains and with each new generation, as you say, we look back at the quaint past and don't recognize ourselves. And I don't even know what the next level things are happening in TikTok.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either, unfortunately. It's funny. I've tried often to get ahead of these questions because I would love to know too. There's a reason why the general population doesn't know what's happening with these platforms until changes are made. And especially people who write critically about them, they want to keep me as far away from these companies as possible. I'd set up meetings at one point when I was writing this book with some executives at a number of these companies who would have functioned like whistleblowers and those meetings didn't happen. So we got very close to the point where those meetings were happening, sometimes involving travel, and then they would collapse at the last minute. So for a very long time, I was just waiting for information that never came because peering behind the curtain at these big companies is not easy to do. There are journalists who have better access than I do. I'm just a a small-time professor who's trying to write books about this stuff. I'm not a journalist at a big organization that can infiltrate these companies more effectively. So yeah, unfortunately, we're all waiting for whatever the next thing is. But the algorithms just keep getting more sophisticated because they learn more and more from us. They have more and more data to crunch. The machine learning algorithms are more effective. They're more sophisticated. They have bigger bandwidth and so on. And so we're up against a pretty serious foe.
1: What were some of those questions you wanted to ask if you could get in those rooms?
2: Yeah, I can start there. Very similar to the question you just asked, what's next? Now, we always think about where we are as the destination, right? We look at phones and we're like, look at this device we've created. Now we're going to have to deal with this device and figure out how to manage it and so on. Surely in 20 years, there's going to be something else because before phones, there was something else and we couldn't imagine that phones would play such a big role in our lives. Then the iPad and other tablets came along and we had Facebook and then suddenly there was Instagram and then suddenly there was Twitter and suddenly there was Snapchat and then there was TikTok. And we're going to look back on these platforms at some point and they're going to seem quaint because they were so simple. Things are going to get more complicated and I want to know what that's going to look like. What does it mean for them to get more sophisticated, more difficult for us to resist? As the arms race for our attention grows and continues, what will it mean for us as consumers of these forms of tech? How can they become harder for us to resist when we already spend every spare minute of our day looking at the screen? So those are the kinds of questions I wanted to ask. Those are the abstract philosophical ones, the more you know, down-to-earth ones. If I was speaking to an executive from one of these companies, I would ask very specific questions about what's going on behind the curtain. What's happened in the last four or five years though, since writing the book, is that a lot of these people have come out of their own volition and they've said a lot of what I was going to ask. So Sean Parker, one of the early investors in Facebook in November, 2017, was giving an interview and he basically said, look, honestly, we've never really cared about your welfare. It's not that we want to hurt you. It's just that we don't care if we do. And what we really want is just to make sure that you spend as much time as possible on our platform so we can make as much money as possible through advertising. We've always wanted that. We've always been, some of us, a little bit squeamish about what that might do to you and your kids, but we are agnostic and are amoral. We don't care about that stuff. It's just about making money. And that's disarming to hear that from someone who's that senior and was there that early on. He's talking about what was going on at Facebook in 2004. So it's almost 20 years ago. And that was driving decisions that still have effects now, almost 20 years later.
1: Yeah. And that was before they were as addictive as they are now. And Mm -hmm. then of course there are all these other developments like neural wetware. I mean, it's one thing having an outside. It's another thing getting kind of flawed technology implanted. And I don't know what that would mean. You've actually done this very interesting chart. You've analyzed how much of our personal time is taken up by devices, but then that would be like maybe going into your dream time.
2: Yeah. People still bristle at the idea that they would allow devices to be implanted inside their brains. Like if I said to you, I've got a little syringe here and I'm just going to inject this little thing into the base of your brainstem and it's going to change your experience of the world for the good. If you're a creative, we can help you be more creative overnight. I can promise you all that sort of wonderful stuff. Almost everyone would say, I am deeply uncomfortable about allowing that to happen. We may become more comfortable with it over time. Elon Musk himself speaks a lot about the idea that we're going to have these implanted they our brain augmenting devices in our heads at some point. He may be right. I don't know. I feel very uncomfortable about that idea. But honestly, as I said before, we're not that far away from that with our current devices because we allow them to be with us always. They are shaping how we think and they are even shaping how we dream because we spend so much time engaged with them. And so if you're going to feed your brain during the waking hours, a diet of all the crap that comes out of these phones, your dreams will also be in some sense reflecting what you've. Put in there during the day. It's not quite the same as shaping your dreams. But I think we're only a couple of steps shy of that now. So we've got to figure it out even before we get to that point. But yes, it could get a lot worse and a lot more intense and a lot more invasive.
1: Yeah, I mean, even without that kind of invasive, we are in some ways redefining our sense of humanity, which could be positive if there is a kind of moral, as you said, governance. But if there's none, it's a kind of cowboy land.
2: Yeah, I think even let's assume that it's all moral. It's all above board. And it's all for the good, like it's designed for the good. I don't even know if there's any organization or human in the world capable of ensuring that happens. It's too complicated a question. Like, How do I shape your dreams only with good ends, with only just augmenting your life, making it better, richer, more creative, more interesting, deeper, helping you understand yourself, bringing more out of life, you know, all these things that people want. How can I do that and ensure that I only do that with none of the negative side effects? Because as soon as you start messing with people's thoughts, it's really hard to guarantee that that's only going to be good. I could promise you deeper insight, but with deeper insight might come a lot of existential angst and a lot of other questions might pop up. One of the problems to humans that separates us from other species is we just know way too much and that's paralyzing. And if you care about things too deeply, it ends up being hard for you to handle. And so I think even if you are trying your very best to augment the way we think in the right positive direction, I think there's a good chance that there are going to be some negative externalities that you can't plan for. And so there needs to be a huge amount of thought before we start messing with the way people think and dream.
1: It's very interesting as well that there is a popularity of a stoic philosophy. There's a big audience from these tech designers following yeah. that. Or on YouTube, like uh, sounds of water and rain and Tibetan singing bowls. And these are very popular videos, which tells you quite a lot of where we are now.
2: It really does. Yeah, we have these digital solutions to very digital problems. But what the solutions are is they're trying to create a digital version of very analog experiences. One of my students a few years ago wrote a very interesting thesis on retromania. It's this love of the past that as things become more sophisticated, we as as a species have this natural tendency to look back into the past and to say, what have we lost? Like what's gone? And so what you get is these ups and downs. It's what happens with fashion when the, that term retro, that something from the 80s is very popular in the 80s. Then the 90s arrive and we look back and we're like, what were we thinking? But then give it another 10 years. And we look back on the 80s again, through rose colored glasses and say, oh yeah, that's There's something really special. There was the magic of the 80s. So you've got this constant, you know, these peaks and troughs. And I think there's some version of that happening now. And so you have a lot of these people going online to find the analog world that they no longer can find in the real world. And so they are doing things like trying to find mindfulness and trying to find yoga and Eastern philosophy online because that's the easiest place to get it. And they're so bombarded by screens that they're using screens now to try to find something that is a little bit more meditative and grounded and central. And that's, I think, what you're seeing a lot of.
1: And for you, what is that? What grounds you? What brings you back to your core?
2: Yeah, I lived in New York City for a long time. And about five years ago, my wife and I, with our two then very, very young kids, decided we wanted to leave the city. And I love Central Park. I love the city. There's so much to love about it. But I wanted more outdoors and I wanted more nature. I wanted water. And trees. And I wanted things that I couldn't only find in Central Park. I wanted it to be all around. And so we moved out to Connecticut where we live not so far from the water. There is unbelievable beauty out here. I run almost every day or go for long walks. And so for me, being in natural environments is really critical to my welfare. It's how I grew up in Australia. It's something that I missed for a long time when I was in the heart of Manhattan. A lot of people don't feel that way, but for me, that's personally very important. And so I have to commute to NYU where I teach and when I teach, it's a long way to go, but I'm willing to do that because day to day I get enough benefit and my kids and my wife get enough benefit from being in these naturally beautiful settings to be willing to do that, to sacrifice the magic of the city, which I still miss a little bit, or the groundedness of being in natural environments.
1: So as you think about the future and our current education models, how we might absorb some of these things, modify that and to make those important early changes. And as you reflect on some teachers or life lessons that were important to you, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
2: It's such an interesting question. I think the most helpful education I ever had was not content. It was never like, here is a thing that's interesting. Here is an artist you need to know about. It was always a way of thinking about the world. It was a way of processing new information. And so I think that's something that's worth cultivating. And you don't get all that much time to do that. You get that when you're in school. And if you go to university, you get that in university. But then you go about the business of living in the world and you don't have as much time to do that. So I would say if you're asking yourself, what kind of kinds of courses should I take or what kinds of people should I learn from? I think one of the things to ask yourself is, is this person teaching me a way of looking at the world that I can then take with me on to the next thing? I want to know that there is a useful way to process new ideas and new things because the world is going to evolve and then you're going to be faced with novelty and you're going to need to make sense of it. And I think that's at the heart of creativity is learning ways of doing things rather than what those actual things are that are in front of you. So for me, that's very important. What are ways of thinking about the world that are useful to you, that will bring on creativity, whatever other useful ends there are that are personally important to you. And that's always been, I think, the hallmark of the best educators and the best minds that I've come across would be people that kind of shift the way I process the world and the information that I come across in the world.
1: Well, exactly. Yes. It's not just the knowledge. It's what we do with that knowledge. That's the real sign of intelligence and imagination. So. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, Adam Alter, for sharing your thinking about the world, your insights into creativity, the neuroscience of technology addiction, and helping us understand how we can reclaim our balance of pleasure and pain to regain our sense of joy and get control of our compulsive behaviors to live lives of greater contentment, purpose, and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative
2: process. Thank you, Mian. Thanks, Claire.
0: The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Yen Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Nia Funk and Claire Constein with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer to this podcast was Claire Konstein. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbach. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andalus and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at Info. Thank you for listening.